At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Pete Najarian will join us shortly. Coming up on Fast, tensions at a tipping point. Stocks tumble as President Trump says he will hold a news conference on China tomorrow. We are live in Beijing with the very latest. Plus, the four words that sank Disney shares today, what they are and how our traders are trading it. Later, a cannabis comeback. We'll tell you what's got the pot stocks blazing higher. But we begin with a major new development coming out of the White House after President Trump signed an executive order targeting social media companies. Let's get right to it. Kayla Tausch is live in Washington with the latest. Kayla. Melissa, this effort by the White House to target social media companies for a perceived bias has been underway for nearly a year. But in the wake of Twitter's fact-checking President Trump's own tweets, policy officials rushed the executive order out today. Here's what what is in it, which the president signed this afternoon. Agencies from the FCC to the FTC and uh, many other agencies in between are directed to review liability shields that are provided to these content companies that protect them from lawsuits over what appears on those platforms. The Department of Justice is directed to organize state attorneys general in that effort to enforce this crackdown. The federal government is also going to be issuing a widespread review of taxpayers' uh, dollars that are going to these platforms in terms of the government's own ad spending. And all of this is expected to happen over the next 30 days. These agencies are supposed to report back and these funding totals are supposed to be submitted to the Office of Management and Budget. Just last hour, President Trump said that he does not want taxpayer money going toward these politically uh, political activists running monopolistic companies. The government spends billions of dollars on giving them money. They're rich enough, so we're going to be doing none of it or very little of it. And the executive order is just part of the effort that the administration is launching here in the Oval Office when he was signing that executive order. He was joined by the attorney general who said that there will be litigation accompanying this, although President Trump said that he imagines that this executive order and any lawsuit forthcoming from the administration would uh, end up in a protracted legal battle. But he expects that challenge and he wants that challenge. He also said there would be legislation coming. But, Melissa, with a House of Representatives controlled by Democrats, it's not not expected that would go anywhere, but it would be a symbolic stance of how the administration feels about Silicon Valley and specifically these social media companies and what they see as targeting of conservative content on those platforms. Kayla, the president said the federal government spends billions of dollars. Is that is that really what they spend on advertisement? 
Well, with the pockets as deep as the federal government, Melissa, it's easy to imagine that the spending isn't that ballpark. It's really hard to look into the labyrinthine contracts of these agencies to find out what exactly they are spending. What we know is that it, just in recent months, the Social Security Administration had a $14 million contract uh, to put social media posts up related to the CARES Act payments. The Small Business Administration had a $100,000 increase in its social media spending over some of those CARES Act programs. And the Navy, for just another example, had a $33 million plan for online advertising, although uh, many of these online advertising, digital advertising budgets, Melissa, they include everything from banners to pop-ups to email to everything, including social media. So it's hard to actually carve out what that figure is, but you can bet that it's fairly large. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with the latest in Washington. And let's check out the disconnect in the social stocks today. Twitter taking the hardest hit during the day. Facebook falling. Snap and Pinterest, though, soaring, presumably because they would be not subject uh, to the same problems as Twitter and Facebook in, in the future. Guy Adami, is this really a threat to the business model of a Twitter, of a Facebook? Hi, Mel. Hi, Guy. Uh, well, it's definitely a threat, but I think it's I think it's more of a veiled threat than anything else. You know, Twitter's had a tremendous run for the last few weeks, so it was probably due to take a bit of a breather. These headlines obviously help, but you know, I think this is more. And I'll use the word. I'm sure I'm going to get some added at me, but it's more bluster, I think, than anything else. I do think Twitter, out of all these things, still sets up the best, probably the most undervalued in terms of the names you just mentioned. The thing that concerns me technically is since September of last year, you know, you've had that series of lower lows and lower highs, and this seems to be forming another one. Technically, it's got to hold basically 30 bucks, but out of the names you've mentioned, I'm more inclined to own Twitter here than the other three. From an investor standpoint, Dan, should you take a look at the stances that the varying stances that a Facebook and a Twitter take in regards to expression? Facebook largely completely hands off Twitter, saying that it is going to wade into this by putting that fact check on certain uh, political uh, tweets. Does that matter? Should you say, you know what, I don't want the social media platform I invest in to be any sort of arbiter of truth? Well, I, it sounds to be a political issue here. I don't think it's nearly as bipartisan as the president just mentioned in the Oval Office there. Um, you know, listen, I think Jack Dorsey tries to do the right things for the right reasons. Um, facts are facts. I think that's something that um, has obviously been something that's been debatable over the last few years. I think Mark Zuckerberg, I think, will go down in history. If you look at the last five years, you look at the um, scale of the platform and you look at their hands-off approach and you're going to say to yourself, they have no control over this monster that they've built. And I think his hands-off approach um, will not be viewed quite favorably. And then on the uh, online ad sales thing, you know, when, when you talk about the total number the president was talking about, these guys have a monopoly. Facebook and Google have a monopoly. Twitter does not have a monopoly. Twitter expected to do $3.3 billion in sales in 2020. That's less than 10% of the entire um, online ad market here um, in the U.S. So to me, I think what Guy used the term bluster, I think there's a lot of bluster in what they're trying to do here. And I don't suspect there's going to be any meaningful action taken against Twitter. If it is bluster, Tim, then any sell-off or any softness that you see in these stocks as a result of this bluster, in theory, should be bought. 
Yeah, I think we look, we have seen bluster. We've seen attacks on Amazon. We've seen attacks on on uh, at times Facebook. We've certainly seen attacks on entities that at times the, the administration doesn't feel uh, side with their view. And, and so uh, those have largely been things to they've been they've been buying opportunities. DOJ attacks that seem to be inspired by the administration seem to have been uh, moments to actually to, to buy. I mean, looking at Facebook and the run Facebook has had going into the last 48 hours of, of these headlines, it was an extraordinary run by Facebook that not only uh, showed amazing resilience during COVID-19, uh, but then layered in this, this, you know, this shops business and their ability to actually start to take place uh, more of a retail platform on top of this advertising model that so far does not look like it's, it's really run into a headwind. So, you know, Facebook around 220, let's see, that's a, you know, that, that was resistance at the old highs. Now uh, that will obviously be support. We're just about there, but it's been an extraordinary run. Facebook is no longer cheap relative to itself, even though it does trade cheap relative to some of the other big uh, mega cap uh, you know, tech names. So uh, for now, you, your question, though, was, is Bluster a buying opportunity has proven to be in the past? Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Pete Najarian has joined us this evening. He is now in his uh, in his quad box where he belongs. Uh, Pete, I, I'm going to go back to the to the board of stocks that we showed at the very top of the show, which showed Facebook and Twitter coming under pressure, Snap and Pinterest uh, thriving in today's session. Would you rather a basket of the Facebook and Twitter or a basket of the Snap and Pinterest? Oh, I take Facebook and Twitter all day long and twice on Sundays. Uh, I look at this right now, and you guys all use the word bluster, so I'll just play along with that as well. It's one of these things, Mel, where actually just take a look. Two weeks ago, we were looking at Facebook that was trading $200 a share, and then suddenly it gets all the way up to 240 in just a blink of an eye, it felt like. And then we've had this little bit of a pullback, even including today. That's really not that sharp of a pullback, I wouldn't say just yet, when I'm looking at Facebook. And I think that's partially because people, I think, have an understanding that based on what we heard from Zuckerberg and the route that they're taking, I mean, let's not forget that uh, Facebook is not just Facebook. I think it's all the other entities, and those other entities are what's going to feed the monster going forward, I think, over the next couple of years. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why I, I own Facebook. I like it. I actually own calls in it as well. So there's a, there's a reason that I'm, I'm as bullish as I am, and I think it's because they do dominate in so many different spots. Now, Twitter, that had a really nice run recently as well, had an absolute rip-roaring run to the upside. Um, there's been a lot of option trading in there. Dan's probably seen it as well. A lot of this upside call buying that we had seen in there, that kind of slowed down a little bit. But I wouldn't stay away from f Twitter for too long. But I think the pressure will be on Twitter far more so than we'll see on Facebook, at least over the next couple of weeks. Guy, approximately four years ago, maybe fewer years uh, from, from today, uh, we thought that the election, the election proved to be a very difficult time for Facebook, particularly the aftermath. And we thought back then that the next election could be a risk. The next election is around the corner at this point. So is it the same sort of risk, especially as Facebook is in Twitter, social media in general, drawing the attention of Washington so closely? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It doesn't appear to be, and I think Facebook, to their credit, has probably done a good job, a better job this time, of trying to get in front of that. And I think they've been doing that now for the last couple of years. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that you know, Facebook is a media company when it suits them, and they're not a media company when it doesn't suit them, which is really working well for the stock. I think Tim nailed the level in terms of 220. I think Pete outlined it really well. They have a lot of a lot more levers to pull in 2019, 2020 
than they probably did 15, 16. So Facebook sets up well. I, I agree on Twitter, though. I would push back and say Twitter's had a good run. Yes, it sold off from 35, but don't underestimate, I think, the power of Twitter to persevere here in the wake of what is, again, for the ninth time in the first eight minutes of the show, uh, the bluster out of the administration. All right, let's talk more about uh, this bluster and bring in New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor Jim Stewart. Jim, always great to speak with you. Likewise, nice to be with you. Would you agree with our panel that this is mostly bluster, or, or does it actually impact the business? Well, I, I think it's probably, you've got to take it somewhat seriously, although um, I don't see it as a significant business threat. Um, this particular effort to, you know, deprive the social media companies of some of the protections they now have, particularly against defamation laws. I think more worrisome long term is the ongoing antitrust investigation. And this kind of rhetoric coming out of the White House, I think, just establishes that, you know, the president's out to get them. And uh, when they do something that he doesn't like, I think what he really wants to see is them to back down and let him get his way, um, and he's threatening that it's not, and he's going to take whatever regulatory action he can against them. And there is a big Justice Department investigation, you know, into Google and Facebook. Interestingly, though, I think Twitter is much less vulnerable there. It's, I don't know how you make an antitrust case against Twitter. Um, both Google and Facebook have made some big acquisitions. They try to get them to possess. But uh, Twitter doesn't, you know, dominate any broad media market. I think it'd be very hard to use them as some kind of monopolization. Uh, as an astute media watcher, Jim, I mean, when you when you take a look at the the very different stances Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are taking, which do you say is the smarter route in your view? Well, I think it goes to the the long term credibility of the platform, and in that sense, I think. Dorsey is, is being smart here. He's trying to maintain the credibility of Twitter as a source of reliable information. And I think Zuckerberg is much more willing to let Facebook be this kind of free-for-all. And it may be because it's a different animal from Twitter. Twitter is closer to a newspaper. I mean, people go to Twitter for sort of breaking real-time information. They don't go there as much to trade little, you know, tidbits of news with their friends. I mean, there are a lot of people on Facebook who probably don't care what the president is saying about, you know, cures for the coast or something like that. They're on there because it's their, it's their primary media outlets are interacting with their friends. So I think they, they both have a different reaction because they, the, the different platforms serve a somewhat different, um, a different Tim, you got a question? Yeah, Jim, ultimately, you know, the, the, the issues for Facebook in the past, the irony is, of course, that they were under the magnifying glass of the administration off the last election. And in fact, there are many that, that argue that uh, they, they truly helped elevate this administration in the last election. Um, but, but Facebook trades at a discount for a reason. And, and I know you're not a financial analyst per se, but again, you, you have been watching this company. Um, do you think uh, it could come out of this election cycle? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, to me, sounds like someone who is trying to tactfully uh, kind of play uh, you know, a middle ground here. And could we be removing, I, I know you're concerned about DOJ, but couldn't we be removing some of that headwind for the Facebook uh, discount? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's possible. I mean, I think 
people have relatively low expectations about Facebook and are worried that they're going to be manipulated as they were the last time by people infiltrating the site. And we know from things they've said that they are taking the election concerns very seriously. I mean, Zuckerberg has said he's not going to try to fact check everything on there, but having, you know, fake individuals or, you know, secret Russian agents pretending to be someone else and disseminating information, they are doing things about that. And if they can succeed at that, I think you're absolutely right. That's going to go a long way towards relieving some of the the biggest concerns about that. And then, of course, another thing is, you know, the, the I, frankly, I think the antitrust issues will be greatly diminished if Trump is not reelected. I, I mean, I think on the merits, I mean, it remains to be seen, but, um, you know, I, I think you saw what happened with the Justice Department going after AT&T and Time mm-hmm. Warner, where that looked in many ways like it was a politically driven um, uh, yeah. lawsuit and, you know, it was thrown out of court. I, I think you could see a similar outcome in the uh, Facebook case. Jim, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Sure. Good. Great subject. Jim Stewart at the New York Times. He got some breaking news out of the ASCO conference. Meg Terrell's got the story. Meg. Hi, Melissa. Well, the world's largest cancer research conference is taking place this weekend, of course, virtually due to the pandemic. But we are starting to see the first presentations being posted, and that's driving up the stock of AstraZeneca in the after hours, more than 6% now. On news about the company's lung cancer drug, Tagriso, uh, it was shown to improve uh, or stave off disease progression in a certain form of lung cancer in this trial. They say after two years, 89% of patients in the trial treated with Tagriso remained alive and disease-free versus 53% on placebo. So analysts are forecasting this will increase that drug sales. It is already on the market for AstraZeneca. Mel, back over to you. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, Pete Nigerian, AstraZeneca, where do you go? Yeah, it's a great name. I don't own it, though, Mel. I own several other names, actually, in the space. I think healthcare has been a great place to be over time. I like Pfizer. I still like Merck. I think there's a lot of different names. Gilead in the biotech space. Everybody's working on COVID, of course. And it's great to hear somebody outside of COVID. It's wonderful to, to hear something other than a COVID sort of a deal. So I think that's great. I like AstraZeneca. I just think it trades at a premium relative to some of the other names. All right, coming up, shares of Salesforce and Williams-Sonoma on the move after reporting results. We've got full team coverage to break down the numbers. Plus, no magic for this kingdom. Why shares of Disney are down, even as its Orlando park gets ready to reopen. Fast Money's back in two. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a pair of earnings alerts for you. Williams, Sonoma, and Salesforce, both on the move in the after-hour session. Full team coverage standing by. Courtney Reagan's digging in on Williams, Sonoma. We kick things off with Josh Lipton for more on Salesforce. Josh. 
Yeah, so Melissa, just to dig into the Salesforce results, the segment subscription and support. So the software revenue, they're earning $4.6 billion. That's in line. Uh, professional services, so their consulting services, $290 million. But the forecast, light versus consensus. Q2 EPS, 66 to $0.67. Cents. The street was closer to $0.75. Cents. Revenue, uh, the guidance for Q2, also light. For the year, they're looking for between 293 and 295 The street was at $3.09. And they say they're looking for the year for revenue to be up uh, 17% to about $20 billion. Street was close to $20.7 billion. I did catch up with Steve Keenig over at Wedbush. He's a CRM bull. I wanted his take. He says revenue did beat consensus by about $19 million on lower expectations. Stock selling off, he says, on this guy down. CRM, he says, also lowered operating cash flow forecast. He knows billings did show 20% growth and beat consensus. He says he remains a buyer, that this is a, a resilient business model, in his words, strong secular drivers and reasonable valuation. On the call, uh, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff saying the first month of the first quarter showed, in his words, an amazing growth trajectory. Then he says the virus emerged at which time his company, he says, pivoted to keep employees safe, guide customers, and support our communities. The pipeline is strong, he says, and we can operate successfully in any environment at any time. For more on Benioff, check out uh, Jim Cramer's show tonight, Mad Money, where Benioff is part of a jam-packed show. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton in San Francisco. Uh, it was a tremendous run going into this quarter, though. The stock up 17%, um, with it down now by 4%. Dan? Yeah, ML up 50% from the lows. You know, today the stock was trading almost 185 uh, in sympathy with the really strong quarter and guidance from Workday. So like you said, really tough setup. And, and listen, I think this is really important as we get to the tail end of S&P 500 earnings here. A lot of these companies have had another month to kind of see what this selling environment looks like, even in the enterprise like Salesforce.com. So this guidance makes sense. I don't think you can take anything away from it, especially if it proves to be um, conservative, I think, as an investor, after such strong gains in a lot of areas of the market, um, you'd like to see CEOs, management set up some guidance that they can beat later on, which might be a tougher year as we get into uh, the meat of 2020. Yeah. Guy Dami does seem prudent. I mean, you either pull it right or you lower it. And I think, listen, if you look in terms of what they did on the revenue front for this quarter, I think it's actually very remarkable. To Dan's point, though, it's had a huge run. If you're looking for a reentry point, I think it comes in the form of like 165. And if you go back and look over the last year or so, you know, that's a level where it's sort of plateaued for a while. So that makes a lot of sense. Past resistance becomes support. And I think you'll find it in the form of $165, Mel. All right, let's get to Williams-Sonoma now. That stock is rocketing higher after reporting results. Courtney Reagan's got the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. So this is a pretty unique quarter because Williams-Sonoma put up positive comps, even though all 616 stores were closed for more than half the quarter. How'd they do it? Well, it was a combination of more than half of their sales being digital or catalog anyway, and consumers really turning into home purchasing in a lot of ways during these shelter-in-place orders. So for the first quarter, Williams-Sonoma, uh, for the first quarter, Williams-Sonoma really beating analyst earnings estimates by a really wide margins. Revenue also stronger than expected. Total comps are up 2.6% and the digital comps alone up 31%. CEO Laura Alvarez said that it really did 
have breakout growth in digital towards the second half of the quarter and that that breakout growth, she says, is continuing now into the second quarter. If you look at a breakdown by brand, it was Pottery Barns, Teen and Kids Division had comps that were the strongest up eight and a half percent. The namesake brand up more than five percent, West Elm up more than three. The main Pottery Barn brand was the only one with lower comps, but lower only by a little more than one percent. The company also calls its liquidity position strong with $860 million in cash, not giving any guidance. And then just now on the earnings conference call, Laura Albers says that of the 364 stores that are open by appointment only, so far the customer response has been strong. But she caveats that by saying social distancing and customer limits that will remain in place will at least constrain the store sales for some time. Back over to you. All right, Court, thank you. Courtney Reagan. This makes sense, right? You're sheltering at home. You realize you want to replace the coffee table. You might need a new Le Creuset Dutch oven, Tim, which is, I think, what you realize when you're at home. But does this last after the <laughs> pandemic or have we seen pull forward from the rest of the year? Yeah. No, and some fondue, you know, mixers and, the, you know, all that stuff. I, I was in. I, we bought a couch. We bought a couch. It hasn't arrived yet. And in fact, I can't wait for it to arrive. So um, I, I get it. Look, William Sonoma has been such an extraordinary move off the bottom. It's 190 percent off those lows. Uh, but it's a microcosm for the market because analysts that are negative here are saying this whole nesting trend, uh, you, 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 it will be challenged by by employment issues. It will be challenged by free cash flow issues for the, the household balance sheet. So uh, valuation for this company, nowhere near cheap relative to itself. We're trading somewhere around 17 times 2020. 21 EV EBITDAs are, are, are probably capped around eight times. Um, I like the name. I like the trend. I think we are nesting more, um, but this may not be the place I'd go. I prefer restoration and I prefer Home Depot and Lowe's to, to better capture this trend. Pete? You know, I love the valuation. She mentioned actually all that cash. I like that balance sheet as well. I say from that perspective, everything is great. And this is the perfect company for, for the times that we've been in, right? Because of catalog and digital and all the sales that they, they take from there. She meant about, about 50% of that. So when I look at that, Mel, I'm impressed. And I'm impressed because it's not cheap. The stuff that Tim's buying out there, it's expensive. So it's one of these things where we've got a pretty high margin business as well. So on top of all of that, I think going forward, it's impressive to me that people are spending that kind of money, which they are. Right. And, and, and they're doing so at the way they are. So I think because of that, I still think there's plenty more upside for this because as people come out and they can go to the stores and touch and feel it, that's just going to be one more opportunity to sell to the customer. Well, you know, couches and fondue sets don't come cheap, right, Guy? I mean, <laughs> they're not cheap. <laughs> no, and I tell you, nobody set. loves a Dutch oven as much as Tim does. I'll, I'll just throw that out there. And, and, and Pete's right. I'll tell you this. I mean, it's a great company. The comps for this the comps were ridiculous. I mean, the street was looking for minus 14%. They came up with up 0.2.6%, which is just remarkable. The only thing that concerns me here is that we're bumping up against the highs we saw back in January, that 78.5 level. Mm. That's the one thing that gives me pause. Otherwise, it's a remarkable quarter. All right, coming up, tensions flaring up between Hong Kong and China, how Beijing's latest move could have big impacts on your money. We're live on the ground in China, and later, Elon Musk gets a jackpot. We'll tell you how much money the Tesla CEO just locked in. Fast Money's back in two. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. 
Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big news within the past hour and a half or so. President Trump is set to hold a news conference on China tomorrow. This comes after Beijing passed a new law that effectively overrides Hong Kong's autonomy. Eunice Yoon is live for us in Beijing with the very latest. Hi, Eunice. Hi, Melissa. Well, people here are going to be watching to see uh, whether or not President Trump is going to announce sanctions on China or possibly even rip up the trade deal. Uh, today, in defiance of Washington, Chinese lawmakers had approved national security legislation, which essentially gives Beijing much more control over the city. It paves a way for the leadership here to clamp down on activities in Hong Kong that it sees as subversive to the Chinese state and uh, possibly allowing it to set up intelligence agencies there. Now, many in Hong Kong as you could imagine, are worried about the implications that this would have for their freedoms. There's been a lot of speculation about what the U.S. response could be, uh, visa restrictions perhaps for Chinese officials, a freeze on transactions, and also um, the idea that the U.S. could withdraw its special trading status with Hong Kong is on the table uh, after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had declared that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from mainland China. That is seen as the first step in that direction. Now, the business community in Hong Kong is very concerned about what this would mean. I've spoken to manufacturers who are worried about higher tariffs, uh, Hong Kong firms who said that this could mean that they'll have less access to um, more sensitive, um, advanced uh, U.S. technology. And then business associations have also said that the overall business climate would suffer. Um, they're urging right now that the U.S., or they're hoping anyway, that the U.S. is going to slow walk its response. Now, so far, the U.S. State Department has uh, c criticized China's moves along with uh, Canada, Australia, as well as the U.K. And my guess, I'm expecting today, that the foreign ministry is going to probably say that all of those countries should just butt out of China's internal affairs. That sounds like that would be the response. You know, I'm curious in terms of the manufacturers you've spoken to, are they domestic or local manufacturers? Because it does seem like uh, there are certain national champions coming to defend Beijing's move. Uh, and I'm thinking most notably of Li Kaxing, uh, the billionaire tycoon in Hong Kong, who, who basically backed Beijing. Yeah, and it's, there are a lot of Chinese manufacturers who I've spoken to, but also China-based manufacturers that are owned by Americans or by Europeans or by Taiwanese. They're all saying very similar things, that they are concerned about the implications because a lot of the goods that are manufactured in China um, route themselves through Hong Kong because the uh, tariffs there are so competitive. So that's um, one concern uh, that uh, Hong Kong as a trading post is, is really going to suffer as, along with all of these, these various companies. All right. Eunice, thank you. 
Eunice Yun in Beijing for us. President Trump's top economic advisor blasting China for its Hong Kong crackdown. Here's what Larry Kudlow said earlier today on CNBC. We can't let this go unnoticed, and uh, they will be held accountable for that if uh, need be. Hong Kong now may have to be treated the same way that China is treated, and that has implications for tariffs, and that has implications for uh, financial transparency and stock market listings and related matters. I think China has made a huge mistake. All right, Tim, when you take a look at the dominoes and, and what sort of falls uh, based on all these actions, what is the biggest impact in terms of how it can impact your portfolio in terms of companies and sectors? Well, again, I, you know, I think emerging markets, remember, if you own the EEM, which is the ETF that gives the MSCI uh, EM index, it's roughly 43% China um, between, you know, the core Chinese names and then some of those that are even listed over here, like Alibaba, et cetera. So um, I, I think emerging markets, uh, which don't need a headwind, which have really underperformed, uh, will struggle here. Having said all that, um, I, I do think, as we've seen some of the recovery post-COVID-19 in Asia, uh, look at Taiwan Semi, uh, look at Alibaba, look at Tencent. I mean, these, those are three great companies that if they're in your portfolio, I, I don't think it's time to throw them to the door. Uh, in fact, uh, I think the resilience that we've seen with, with names that are either critical to the global supply chain, look at, I mean, without Taiwan Semi, uh, there are a lot of companies that are in serious trouble. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think the, the bigger implication is for markets here. And I think uh, the sell-off late in the day uh, certainly had a lot to do with, with the headlines. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. Um, and I think this is exactly what gave us pause in October into those lows on October 3rd. I think we have to be careful as a market for this. All right. For more on uh, the Hong Kong risk, as well as some of the other ones facing the market, let's bring in Jonathan Golub, the chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Jonathan, great to speak with you. Good to be here. We did see the reaction in the market. As soon as we heard that the president was going to have a news conference tomorrow, uh, we had the S&P 500s, uh, you know, turn lower. So is this finally, uh, you know, a risk that the market is starting to grapple with? Yeah, I mean, this is, and that's what we were just hearing a second ago. This, this is part of a larger China global trade issue. Um, independent of this, we had trade issues with, uh, with China. When the pandemic came about, there's been all kinds of concern about the role that China has played in that and their transparency, and that created further tensions. There was um, some real concerns about the importance of, of China to our um, supply chains, which which perhaps put um, U.S. businesses and the U.S. you know economics at, at risk, and all of that was already you know brewing before this this issue, and so this is coming at a, at a period you know in a period of tension between the U.S. and China, and you know the market um, you know the, the market wasn't particularly happy about it today, but I think the long term issue for the markets is will we see a walking back of global trade in a way which would you know which would hinder long-term growth um, not just in in the in the current but really uh, to change those relationships so the trade issues heightened tensions with china to perhaps levels we haven't seen since the beginning of the trade war jonathan and the lack of clarity on earnings does it make sense for the markets to be where they are right now well, no, <laughs> that's that's the that's the short answer. But we're trading right now like it's 1999, and everything is just terrific. Um, we're we're trading at a 21, nearly a 21 and a half 
stock market multiple. We put out a report um, earlier, it was actually yesterday, which looks at what the returns are um, when you start, um, the future returns next decade, if you're starting at a 21 multiple. And the picture isn't really pretty for stock market returns when, when you're starting at an elevated P.E. What's not pretty? Um, before dividends, historically, the average is about zero. And I'm not saying that that's what we're going to get. It seems far too ominous, and I don't believe that. But it's, it's likely to be something that's much more suppressed. I think what the Fed has done here is they've pulled forward years of returns into the, the last three months or two months, and the result is that they've basically taken it away from, uh, from future uh, results. And at some point in time, everybody is, is celebrating this liquidity. But what's liquidity? It's borrowed money. And at some point, we need to pay this back. So, uh, yeah, I think stock prices are too high. Jonathan, thanks for your time. Always good to sure. speak with you. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse. Uh, Pete, you're probably the most bullish on the panel um, on a you know, relative basis. What would you say to sort of counter what Jonathan said, because that is, that's pretty depressing, <laughs> his finding in terms of the yeah. return over the next decade when a P.E. is 21. Yeah, I find that interesting. And I, I, I tell you, I stood on the trading floors in 99, so I totally understand what really was going on. And that's, he's, he's incorrect on that because the multiples were absolutely insane. When you look at the NASDAQ, the multiples were closer up into the 40s, Mel. So it's, it's, it's a really different time, and it was done by, obviously, all this money and all this liquidity and everything that was thrown at the markets was thrown at it because we all understand what was going on. It was the pandemic, and everybody was doing everything they could after stopping the markets. So I don't know that I, I agree with the, the notion that it's even anything close to 1999. Those were inflated, and they were far more inflated than what we're seeing right now. Now, does it mean we're not? Uh, we probably are in front of ourselves. This is a pretty rapid recovery and so I think that part is a little bit concerning, but I just don't see the overvalued side of it as much as Jonathan was laying out there. Because when I look at so many different names, you look at, you, you look at the names that are leading the big five, the power five, those names are all relatively still reasonable, I think, in terms of price. And then you look over the financials who have made a little bit of a move of late until today, a little bit of a pullback. But those are trading at incredibly low multiples. So across the board, I can point to so many different areas where I'm not seeing anything even close to 19.9 in terms of multiples. So I think if you want me to throw the, uh, the bull hat in the ring, I will based on that. All right. Coming up, Disney shares not feeling the love tonight. Have investors gotten too optimistic about a reopening? And later, the cannabis comeback. We'll tell you what's got the pot stocks blazing higher. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney dropping today on a downgrade at Imperial Capital, which says the stock has come too far too fast. The analyst cutting his rating to an underperform, lowering the price target to 105 a share, trimming it by two bucks. Um, it's primarily a valuation call, Guy. But for every Imperial, you've got a J.P. Morgan uh, reiterating its overweight rating. And J.P. Morgan reiterated with a $135 price target. So, you know, that's, that's what makes markets, as they say. Let me be clear. When Disney reported a couple of weeks ago, I think the stock was trading either side of 100 I was pretty convinced we'd go down, trade down to $92 and see what would happen there. That proved to be incorrect. Obviously, the reopening got people excited. But Disney in this environment, I think most people would say, is not cheap. And there clearly is a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, I think the run-up to this 121 level has been excessive. I could definitely see it back down to 105. 
Um, but it becomes down to a valuation call and what you're comfortable with. As much as I love, and you know it, my favorite ride, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And I can't wait to get back on it at some point in the fall, followed quickly by the Hall of Presidents. I just think the stock is a little rich in this That's environment for me. I think that uh, some rides will be difficult in terms of social distancing, and the Hall of Presidents might be one. I mean, the crowds for that particular ride are just off the charts all the time, Dan, as I'm sure you can attest. I mean, J.P. Morgan's pointing out the plans to reopen Disney World in Orlando, and also uh, the release of Mulan is still on track for July. So, so things are, are improving for Disney. Does that merit uh, a buy here? Well, I think, like, Optically, they're improving for Disney, but the park's operating at 50% capacity. Um, movie theaters operating at 50% capacity. Uh, you tell me when ESPN's going to have something other than The Last Dance on there. Um, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, I've watched it three times already, getting a little old. I love Disney here. I love Disney under $100. Um, I think this stock will continue to have trouble at 120 That was the area it broke out last year um, after the announce of Disney plus and just the reveal um, of their plans for it. But yes, it is expensive here. And without the clarity of when their businesses, the studios, the parks, the networks, all that stuff is going to be running at some place over 50% capacity. I think it is expensive here above 120. All right. Coming up, the pot stocks are smoking hot. Should you keep off the grass or roll into some of these names? Our Cannabis King is here. He'll get into the weeds for us next. But first, Musk makes mega money. We'll tell you how much the Tesla CEO just locked in. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla CEO Elon Musk just locked in a major payday. Phil LeBeau is here with the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, remember when Elon Musk was awarded this huge incentive-laden package back in 2018. People said, this is outrageous. How can he ever be awarded $55 billion? He'll never make it to any of those benchmarks. Well, he has officially made the first one. We talked about this when it happened a couple of weeks ago. The first performance-based payout for Elon Musk has been approved by the Tesla board. That is worth $768 million on paper. How did he get there? Pretty simple, really, because they had achieved a $100 billion market cap for Tesla shares for 30 consecutive days and a six-month average of a $100 billion market cap, along with a couple other uh, benchmarks they had to hit. He got 1.6 million Tesla shares, options to purchase those shares at $350 a piece. The shares must be held for five years, but guys, that is a $768 million payday. By the way, as you take a look at shares of Tesla going all the way back to March 21st of 2018, that's when the uh, shareholders approved the pay package. And at the time, people said, well, okay, maybe $100 billion they might get there. What's the next benchmark? Market cap over $150 billion, not only for 30 days, but for a trailing average of six months. That would have to be at $808 a share. Oh, look where the stock is right now. They would have to average that for the next six months and then at least for 30 straight days. Melissa? I remember, I mean, when the, when the board first approved that, we thought that that was nuts. And, and it's not just yeah. one or two tranches. I mean, this is 12 tranches Correct. Of, of, of benchmarks that he has to Correct. hit. So we've already gone and, through and, two, basically. And if he were to hit the 12th one, mm-hmm. the market cap would be $650 billion for Tesla. Nobody's expecting that to happen, but that's the 12th, the final benchmark that he would need to hit. And there's other parameters within there in terms of profitability, but those are the main ones. It's the market cap. Wow. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau yeah. in Chicago for us. Imagine that, $650 billion in market cap. Um, Guy Dami, 
you know, you hear about a big payday package like that. And you hi. think, was this, hi, was the CEO worth it? In this case, absolutely. I mean, say what you want about so Mr. Musk. So SEC investigation, funding penny. secured, all that, all that stuff. He's worth it. That doesn't seem, if you recall back in the day, there was a, a, somebody that worked in the uh, crime world. His name was John Gotti, and his nickname was the Teflon Don. And I'm not suggesting that Mr. Musk has anything nefarious going on, but he is Teflon as well. I mean, nothing seems to stick. And to answer your question, I think anybody but him, uh, this could, we'd be having a much different conversation about Tesla the stock. So, you know, like him, don't like him. You, you, you have to admit the man is a visionary and the stock has done a lot better than 99 percent of the population ever considered possible. Just quickly, one story we didn't really hit yesterday because of the SpaceX launch being scrubbed was the price cuts in North America up to 6 percent on vehicles, Tim, and, and to some that may say there's, there might be a demand problem in this pandemic. The people that it's actually seeing the impact of the pandemic on spending habits and Tesla's feeling the pain. Well, look, Tesla at times has done different things to bring prices down. And, and, and ultimately the question is, what's, what's the break-even price on the Model 3? That's, that's my big issue. But um, not surprising to see them cutting prices. They're not the only one out there cutting prices. Um, so I won't pile on there. But clearly, I think demand is an issue. All right. Still ahead, a big opportunity in retail. Why options traders are betting on a breakout for this name. We'll bring it to you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Lowe's managing to hold in the green despite today's late-day sell-off. And over in the options market, traders are betting on even bigger gains ahead for the home improvement stock. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So the home improvement space and the home builder space basically seeing a lot of options activity this week. Home Depot and Lowe's also amongst those names that we're seeing bullish activity. Lowe's traded three times as many calls as puts today. Most of that activity was short-dated and speculative bets to the upside. The most active were the weekly 130 calls. We saw over 9,000 of those trading. Very cheap. Those were things trading just under 15 cents. Those are making bullish bets that the rally that we saw earlier this week could continue through the end of the day tomorrow, maybe a pop of about 4% or so. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, High times for the pot stocks will break down those big moves next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of canopy growth jumping more than 9% ahead of tomorrow's earnings. And investors have been lighting up the cannabis space. Shares of Tilray, Afria, Kronos, all surging double digits just this month. It's worth noting many of these names are still well below their 52-week high. So what's fueling the cannabis craze? We've got to ask the king, <laughs> Tim. Well, now we love we love these puns. So first of all, canopy growth is traded through the 200 day to the upside for the first time since Jan of 2019. So momentum has changed massive short covering. But that's not why you're buying it. Uh, the fundamentals have, have, have improved. But before that, the macros improved. So we know illegal to essential in the last 18 months. We also know that the SAFE Act was at least uh, pushed into the CARES 2.2 Act around COVID-19. There's a lot of ballot initiatives for cannabis. The macro is better. The state sales are much better than expected. Michigan, Illinois, you name it. But then the fundamentals. Think of the, the big American MSOs that have announced or actually single state operators like TrueLeaf. Uh, TrueLeaf with almost 50 million in EBITDA, uh, EBITDA margins that are very impressive. GTI, which came in at about 25 million in, in, in EBITDA. 
52% roughly on EBITDA margins. Cureleaf will do 147 in pro forma, uh, did 147 in pro forma. So, so the point is that profitability, while companies around the world are pulling guidance, Cannabis companies are very happy to give guidance because uh, some of the bigger players in the United States are actually profitable and they've shown trends of profitability. So uh, Canopy Growth has become a much more focused company. They invested in Terrasend. Terrasend hires Jason Ackerman as CEO who ran Fresh Direct, knows CPG, knows consumer. The industry's gotten sophisticated. It's rationalized balance sheets. There's been a lot of pain, but it's been a very important time for cannabis and a very exciting time. All right. It is time for the final trade. Now let's go around the horn. Pete Nigerian. I'm going to go with Lowe's. I agree with Mike Coe. I love that action. I actually bought out a week further, so I got a little bit of time. Dan. Yeah, Snap is not in Trump's crosshairs, but it's in TikTok's crosshairs. I wouldn't be buying this up 7% move. I think it has a lot of resistance at 18 bucks. Tim. Alibaba, I don't think, is in the U.S.'s crosshairs, and I think you're buying weakness in this massive Chinese mega-cap name. Guy Adami. Yes, Mel. Well, you might notice that Milo over my right shoulder is in your crosshairs. Uh, Wonderful dog, that Milo. What also is wonderful, and I think Pete would say giddy up to this, has been and will continue to be Pan American Silver, P-A-A-S. Thanks for watching Fastly back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.